Good morning. Welcome to Summit View Covenant Church again. If you are here uh, following up from last week, here I am again. Sorry about that. If you're here for the first time, just so you know, I am filling in for our pastor, Kurt Carlson, while he's on vacation. And I am a, uh, not a paid religious professional. I'm a regular person just like you. All right, so last week we read how Paul told the Colossians a couple of critical words. He said to renounce, remember that, the old self? That was the 10% I asked you to recall. Renounce the old self and put on the new self, like putting on a suit of clothes, putting on a new outfit that's more than an outfit. It's not a costume. Putting on the new clothes transforms you into a new man or woman in the image of Jesus Christ. And we talked about how to apply these concepts to ourselves. And I asked you to remember exactly that from a week ago. How many of you remembered that? The 10%. Great. 10% of you remembered the 10%. Uh-oh, that's only 1%. Okay. So today I'm going to complete the thought there. Remember I said that the main verb of that passage is in verse 12. It's clothe yourselves. That's the verb, and all the other words explain it. That's still true today. We'll finish reading up chapter 3, go just a little bit into chapter 4 of Colossians. The main verb of this passage is still put on the new person. So last week, I taught you how Paul emphasized transforming the inner man and the inner woman, being pulled together with other believers by this bond. It's It's a rope or a cable that pulls believers together into the bond of peace and love. This week, what Paul wrote to the Colossians, what I'm going to read to you, is not so much about the self relating to the self, it's ourselves relating to other people. So here Paul pushes the principles of transformation from the self to how we interact with other people. Last week I taught you how Paul taught the Colossians that the inner person is being transformed by learning new habits and replacing old vices with new virtues. So this week it's about how we relate to other people. So early this morning, I met for breakfast with a friend who wishes to remain anonymous, but his initials are Steve O'Dell. And I've decided this is my new plan. Every time I preach, I'm going to have breakfast with somebody wise. He gave me this amazing summary. I'm just going to put it right in right now. He said, you know, Kent, here's the thing. As we talk about relationships between people in any context, personal, family, business, international relations, government relations, it always comes down to the same thing, how we approach and deal with conflict. Wow. So, Steve, thank you. In fact, I'm done. Just kidding. (laughs) That is what Paul addresses here today, specifically with husbands, wives, fathers and children, and masters and slaves. I'll tell you about that. So, in a minute, I'll read the passage. But First, I was talking to Andy about this. I need to jump in and complete a thought that Kurt started about three weeks ago. We just jump in and complete it. It'll help us today. He asked a question, you know, what in the Christian life is God's part and what's my part? Remember that? And Kurt urged all of us, we can do our part. We can do our thing. We can participate in this process of transformation. I wanted to finish up that thought by asking us, you, what is God's part, what is my part? Is it 100% God, 0% me, 85% God, 15% me? 
83.2% God. And Is there a balance in there? See, if the Christian life is 100% God, 0% us, we're passive. That doesn't fit in with what Jesus taught, does it? If it's 0% God and 100% us, we have another kind of a problem. That's called self-righteousness, judgmentalism, legalism, and none of us want to be like that, do we? So what is the balance? I put a couple of critical words in the bulletin for you to take home and put up on the mirror because I know you're going to find them fascinating. And I just have to use technical words out of the dictionary. First of all is the idea, if you read Romans chapter 5, it's right there. It's called imputation in theological language, and I know you can handle that. Imputation is an act done 100% by God. Through the work of Jesus Christ, when we trust him, God looks at us and says, great, I'll do my thing. I will impute you righteous before me. It's a word that used to be used in accounting. If I impute 50 bucks to Scott Bufell's account, that means he pays me. I've imputed it on his account. If I impute minus 50 bucks, I owe him. In this language, then, God has imputed us on his book, 100% righteous, qualified to stand before him. What did we do? Not much. Believing in Christ and trusting him, and we're there. Imputation is an act of God, and it's a state of living. How does this work? I have an illustration from my favorite episode of The Simpsons. It's one of the Halloween episodes when Homer brings home this Krusty the Clown doll that has a curse. Remember that one? Krusty the Clown doll hates Homer. and spends this whole episode trying to kill him. And so finally, Krusty's got Homer down on the floor, right? Being beaten up by this doll. Marge calls the Krusty the Clown company, saying, help, help, your doll is killing my husband. The service guy shows up, picks up the Krusty doll, and on the back is a switch. And the service guy says, oh, I see your problem. Somebody flipped this doll from good to evil. Here. And he flips it back from evil to good. Problem solved. And the episode ends with Krusty the Clown doll, who's about that tall, bringing Homer beers on a table. Problem solved. I bet you'll never forget that one. Obviously, neither have I. See, through the work of Jesus Christ completed on the cross, God has flipped the switch from unrighteous before him to click righteous before him. Don't sweat it. If anyone knocks on your door and gives you a presentation that begins with the idea that your relationship with God needs something more than trusting Christ, think about it. And you can politely say, you know what? I've been imputed righteous. Let's read Romans 5 together. An expensive hobby, but fun. The next word is impartation. Read Romans chapter 6 and 7 about that. That's where we get to do our part. Impartation is the process of becoming righteous. That's the Christian life. That's all kinds of stuff. You can put in all kinds of activities. Reading the Bible, being changed by strip, uh, Scripture, uh, praying, uh, sharing your faith, uh, whatever. Throw in all the activities you want, fine, perfectly legitimate. That's not what it is, though. It's not a series of things. It's a process of being made into the image 
of Jesus Christ. Impartation ends when we end. When we die and are brought into God's presence, we're done with that. As long as we're alive on earth, kicking, we need to be involved in the process of impartation. I've got another example for that, not from The Simpsons, unfortunately. Got it from a Hallmark card. It's actually not a Hallmark image. It's an ancient Greek image, so I count it as a good one. You know what a, a, a cornucopia is, right? We call that a horn of plenty. You see those at Thanksgiving time. The Greeks did this in honor of the goddess Ceres, the goddess of agriculture. But whatever. You know what it is. It's big at the top, curvy, small at the bottom. Imagine this. When you first trust Christ, this basket is your life. And up at the top are big fruits. There's like a big old rotten watermelon up there. You take a look at that and say, boy, this stinks. And you grab it and you throw it out. Good. That's putting on some new habits. A little farther down, there's a cantaloupe. A little bit smaller, diameter. Say, boy, that stinks. Get that out of there. And you get down to some smaller fruit. See what I'm getting at? See, I'm an old guy. I'm older than most of you. I'm at the process now of dealing with sins in my life that are way down there. And boy, it hurts to get them. Because they're not big. They're not easy to get. You have to squirm and you have to dig. And sometimes it hurts. I'm not telling you this to discourage you. I'm describing reality. Impartation is the process by which you grow while you're alive more towards the image of Jesus Christ. Is that clear? Imputation. Click. Impartation. Process. Still awake? Okay, good. So if you go back to Colossians chapter 1, Paul talks about imputation. Chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, if you want to take a look at it. He says, look, Colossians, through the all-sufficient work of Jesus Christ, on top of which you need nothing else, you are imputed righteous. Now in chapters 3 and 4, where we are today, this is about the impartation of righteous behavior. Not, not to earn points with God. No need to worry about that. Question. Why doesn't God just do it all? I'll answer this briefly and then move on. If I were God, and let's all be glad I'm not, because I'm a controlling person, I would have reached out to all of us sinners and said, man, you guys are just such losers. Click. Now you're in my presence. Done. I would then, as God, remove all your free will, your ability to think and choose and interact, and actually grow in moral goodness. Stupid me. God didn't do that. The reason he didn't is because he actually wants us to love him in our actions and our habits and our virtues. That's why he didn't do it all. Okay, enough. Let me read from the Bible. Colossians 3.11 Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, But Christ is all and is in all. And then I skipped down to verse 17 today, because I did the others last week. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, 
but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ whom you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Let me go back to the verses and explain a few key words to you. I'll help you understand what this means. In verse 11, your Bible might begin with, here there is no Greek or Jew, or if you have another translation, it might be, where there is no Greek or Jew. Actually, the word in Greek is, in whom. It's a personal pronoun. And the referent is, who? Go back a couple of words. The creator. So it's not a place, it's a person. Okay, I'll give you a little tidbit of Greek language cocktail party trivia. Are you ready? This is called a genitive of sphere. A genitive of sphere. What the heck does that mean? If you can imagine a, a place, a realm, a condition, it's like, a, it's like an attitude, like a way of life. See, in English we don't have it, so I'm struggling. Paul says, in this place where the Creator where Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done his work, there's this big place. We're all equal. And so Paul uses the demographic of his day. Jew, Greek, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, yada, yada, yada. Every kind of person in the world in Paul's day, in that sphere, is equal. There isn't any of that. So think about that. Once we are made righteous by God, we join the group of Christians in Christ, and we're all equal. It's like we all have a good seat at the game. How many seats can there be at the 50-yard line? Well, in the sphere of Christ, we all have one. Remember that. If someone wants to talk to you about being a better Christian or talking about you know, first-class or second- or third-class Christians or saintly dudes or whatever, you know what? When you trust Christ, you've joined a group of equals. The demographic doesn't matter. In verse 17, Paul says, Do everything for Christ. Now, I need to tell you, translating Greek is one of my goofy little hobbies. This took me half an hour, but I got it. You might want to write this down. You can really impress somebody at work. This is a type B conditional subjunctive clause. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I still got it. Okay, here's the deal. This means... Paul uses this word to describe doing. It means Colossians. This is generally true for you right now, and I believe it's true for you in the future. It's not a command. It's an encouragement. It's a compliment. He says, Colossians, whatever you do, and you already are, and I know you're going to continue, do it in the name of Jesus Christ. And then let me fill this in for you. And he talks about relationships. Is that making sense? This little verb, whatever you do. How many of you have memorized this before, right? Sure, you get out of college, you get your first job. If you're a Christian, you memorize this little verse. Okay, whatever I do, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do all to them in the name of Christ. Well, it's true. It's not a command. It's a description. And so here Paul transitions from focusing on the self to interacting with other people. He said, okay, Colossians, Summit View Covenanters, I've just told you, whatever you do, 
I know you can do this in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, let's talk. And he names off some people. Wives, husbands, children, fathers, slaves, masters. Here's a question. Are any of you in the room today not included in any of these groups? You're all there. Every one of you is a husband or a wife or a parent or a child or a slave or a worker or a slave or a master? Sure you are. So we're all included. There's a lot to say about this. I won't take the time to today. Paul gives us a summary. In verse 18, the verb, wives, submit to your husbands. This is fascinating, and it comes out of Greek military. In their decades-long war with Athens, uh, sorry, with Sparta, the Athenians would raise armies as needed for battle. You know how they did that? They had no draft or professional military. They put out a call for all able-bodied men. Show up with your spear and shield. We have to fight. They'd show up. They had no professional military classes. When it came time to choose a commander, you know what they would do? They'd pick one. They'd look around and say, well, who looks like they could lead us into battle this time? Oh, okay, you. Great. We elect you captain. You're just as good as we are. We're just as good as you are. You're the captain. We're the soldiers. Therefore, we're going to, and the verb is hupotasso, we're going to submit ourselves to you. You lead us. We'll win the battle. You show us where to go. So what Paul does here by asking wives to submit to their husbands is massively countercultural because in the Greek and Roman world, women and children were property. So he says, ladies, wives, you're equals. In the sphere of Christ, I just told you that. Submit yourself to the husband as an equal. His job is to lead you to the presence of Christ. Then he turns on the husbands. He says, husbands, love your wives. A husband in the first century would say, you've got to be kidding me. That's like loving my dog. I own my wife. She's my property. What? Very countercultural. And he says, stop being harsh or embittered with them. Addressing a problem, I think, in the Colossian church of husbands who didn't know what they were doing. He goes on to children. Obey your parents in everything, as pleases the Lord. If you were a child with a brain, you'd say, well, yes, of course I will obey my father. I'm his property. I'm like his dog. Of course I will. This is very countercultural because Paul says, you know what? This pleases God. God takes care of you. Fathers, do not embitter your children. If I were a dad, I'd say, what? Why, why do I care about the little rats? There's always another one. I own a whole bunch of them. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. Slaves had even fewer rights than wives and children. Wives and children were property. Slaves were like Bic lighters. Use them up, toss them, get another one. So if you're a slave, you might say, Paul, obviously, I'm going to obey my master. If I don't, he's going to kill me. But then he goes on to say, you know what? Work hard. Your true master is the Lord if you're a Christian. That's why you do it. And then he turns on those evil masters. Actually, the Greek word is kurios. It means Lord. Same word we use to talk about the Lord with a capital L, small l. Lords, show yourselves to be right and fair. Massively upsetting, countercultural words. The master might say, be nice to my farm machinery. Think about that. So right here, the values of Paul's time come in collision with becoming transformed in the image of Christ. Does that apply to us? No, of course not. 
Moving right along. I'll get there in a minute. Here's my translation of the Greek New Testament. In the sphere of the one who created you, in him is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave, not bound, but Christ is all and in all. And whatever things you would be doing in word and in work, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, being thanksgiving people to your Father. Wives, continue to submit yourselves to your husbands, as is correct in the Lord. Husbands, love and cherish your wives and do not become bitter towards them. Children, obey your parents according to all things. This is pleasing to the Lord. Father, fathers, stop provoking your children in order that you may not begin to dishearten them. Slaves, obey according to everything your lords according to the flesh not in eye service as people pleasers, but in sincerity of heart as those who fear the Lord. This is expected, accomplishing from your soul as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward, which is the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ you serve. For the one doing wrong will get for himself the wrongdoing and is not found in God. Lords, grant what is right. Show yourself to be fair to your slaves knowing that you also have a Lord in heaven. Another piece of cocktail party trivia, and then I'll move to application. Think about this. You may have friends who think that your religion is stupid and the Bible is unreliable. In fact, if you're here today and you're not a believer, I'm glad you're here to hear something unusual. Okay? I don't care if you believe in God or not. Think about this. As you look through Western culture, this place where we live, all notions of spouses loving each other, parents loving children, and employers and employees being on good terms come from the New Testament. Whether you like it or not, that's historical fact. They come from the New Testament. Paul's world was a dark and sad one. Our world is enlightened by the principles of the New Testament. There, I've said it. Okay, applications. What does this mean to you? Why do you care? I'll offer some, and they're in the bulletin. I've said it before. I'll say it again. All believers are of equal status before God. We don't have the same gifts, the same talents, the same abilities. No. But we're equal before God. We all have a seat at the 50-yard line. It's just like Paul said to the Colossians, avoiding false teachers who will come to you and say, you know what? If you were a real Christian... You'd do this. You'd do that. You'd eat this. You'd never eat that. You'd come to this church. You'd never go to that church. Okay, I want to give you some ammo to fire back if people do that with you. The only variable here is this genitive of sphere. If you're in the sphere of people who've been saved to the work of Jesus Christ, you're in. The switch is flipped. Krusty the Clown is working. He's going to bring you a beer tonight. Oh, no, shut up, shut up. Here's the deal. Either you're in Christ or you're not. That's the variable. About relationships. Think about this. All of our relationships need to be lived out and examined and illuminated by the light of Jesus Christ and his lordship. Paul's words to the Colossians were, were countercultural in their day, and they still are. If you read carefully, you're going to find yourself there. Now, you know what? This is not all about me, but you guys know me. I am a husband. 
I am a father. I work for a big company, so I am a slave. Since I'm in middle management, I'm a master. I have a friend at work who's a Christian guy with the real disease. I would trust him with anything. A couple years ago, he said, you know, Kent, let's think about this. As Christians at work at FEI company, we really need to be the best we can be. And I said, well, you know, okay, whatever. I mean, what are you thinking? And he said, well, at my other company, there are a lot of us believers around. And you know what? Some of those guys were the worst workers on the shop floor. I said, you're kidding. So we talked about this. In fact, this friend of mine, his name is Troy. He and I, several years ago, did, did, did the pinky swear, right? And we said, someday when we're old and rich and retired, we're going to write a book called Master-Slave Relationships in the Workplace. Wait till it comes out. You're going to love it. <laughs> if you are a Christian and you have, you know, a job in a factory like I do, man, you know what? You've got to be good. Because you are probably the only Bible many of your co-workers are ever going to read. Okay? I know you don't like me for saying that, but it's in the Bible. Sorry. <laughs> got to be it. Okay, the third thing is, here's where you're really not going to like me. I expect to find my tires slashed in the parking lot, but I'm going to do it. There are no conditions placed on these statements. Okay? Here's the deal. God himself says to me, Kent, love your wife and don't be harsh with her. And I might say, not that this is true, I might say, but you know what? I married a shrew. I didn't. Am I really supposed to love this person? Or God might say to my wife, Sharon, submit to Kent's guidance in the home. It's his job to lead you guys to Jesus Christ in the presence of God. And my wife might say, that loser? See how everything works both ways, doesn't it? You children, Kent, I need to obey my parents? I'm over 18. How does that work? I don't have time to explore that completely today, but I'll tell you this. You know what? It doesn't matter if your mom and dad are dirtbags or bad parents. At some level, we've got to work this out. Parents, especially fathers. Wait a minute. Don't embitter my children or they'll become discouraged. What's that all about? You know, a lot of us don't know what the heck we're doing when it comes to raising children. And that's okay. Start off with some scriptural instruction and you probably won't go wrong. You mean I'm actually supposed to pay attention to these little rats? I thought it was all about me. Huh. Supposed to love them, teach them, discipline them? See, in Paul's day, children were property. In our day, we don't think that way. But some parents actually do. Okay? Some parents just have to micromanage and control their children, and it's really, really bad. Our job as parents is to turn them not into likenesses of us, but into likenesses of Jesus, and then let them go. Okay? Are you hating me yet? You will soon. You mean I actually have to obey the Dilbert that I work for? Yes. Before you come whining to me about your boss, let me tell you I have had some of the worst in history. Jesus Christ tells me every day, go into the factory and do what your manager tells you to do. Unless it is immoral, unethical, illegal. Yeah, yeah, we know that. We know that. Managers in the workforce. Anybody in management? Don't you wish you weren't? Fortunately, it is illegal to shoot your employees when they misbehave. 
Even more than that, though, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ with a real disease, you and I are under pressure to figure out how to do this in a godly manner. We are stewards of the resources of the company, and we are stewards of the resources of the message of Jesus Christ. When I get this figured out, I'll write a book, and I'll be rich. If we're in management and we're believers, that's our job. If you don't like it, get out of management. Almost done. All believers have some transforming to do. Yes, believe it or not, you and I are not perfect. You looked in the mirror this morning and you thought you were. You're wrong. We've all got some growing to do. I don't care if you've been a Christian for a day or for 90 years. You're not done yet. That's the process of impartation. We all have a lot of growing up to do. Let me tell you one more brief little tale and then I'm almost done. A few years ago at my company, I had this wonderful job. I was the operations manager of the Beam Technology Division of FEI Company, currently the world leader in commercial applications of focused electron and ion beam technology. And it was pretty cool. I walked around like I owned the place. And then that wonderful day, June of 2002, my boss sat down with me and he said, you know what, Kent, you're not cutting it. Your performance is pretty lame, and as the company changes, you're not going to be able to do the job I need you to do. You're done. I have something else for you to do. As my hero, Admiral James Kirk, once said, I was re-ranked. Pretty bad. If you've ever been through this, it's a real pain. Here's what I learned. I learned that I actually was thinking I was better than other people, and I wasn't. A whole lot of that nasty stuff called pride has been taken away and, for me, replaced with humility. In fact, I'm so humble now, I'm proud of it. (laughs) I had a lot of growing up to do, and so do all of you, and so does every person in the realm of Jesus Christ. It's okay. I mean, you're not bad. It's the way it is. So don't let yourself get into this status quo thing of saying, I've arrived. Woohoo. Okay, I'm all done. We're not. We're not done. Keep at it. Okay, well, I called this sermon from here to there. I, I told Andy I wanted to call it from here to eternity, but that's been taken. I'd get sued. Okay, so where's there? Well, I've already told you, there is the presence of God. Someday I'm going to be there with you in the presence of God. But also, there is the journey. It's the, it's the travel. It's the experience. Now, I don't know about you, but I think it's fun. Is it fun for you? I hope it is. You know, learning, growing, looking in yourself, comparing who you are and what you're doing to the light of Scripture, changing. And you're not on your own. You've got a whole room full of people with you. I hope you can talk about this with your discipler, your mentor, your best friend. You know, once a week I have coffee with a guy, and this is what he and I talk about. We challenge each other to move on and go ahead on the journey from here to there. The journey is what impartation means. Almost done. Here's the critical 10% I'd like you to remember. Guess what? I already gave it to you. It's up at the top of the bulletin. Here you go. We've been imputed righteous because of the finished work of Jesus Christ We're as perfect as we're going to be. Excellent. And at the same time, every one of us who's alive, every Christian, is in the process of being completed in the image of Jesus Christ. So here's what I hope you do. Here's what I hope I've helped you to do. Sometime today, sit down. Take a good think. Take a good, long think. Ask yourself, where are you on the journey? Where's your next step? 
you have some questions or you think you need some help, you can give me a call. Andy, Troy, don't have to be a professional Christian to answer this one. Where are you in the journey? Thanks.